following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Exodus. Uh, we're working through the book of Exodus this year uh, in, these, in these services, and we've covered a fair amount of ground. Today, we come to one of the most interesting, I think, parts of the book of Exodus, one of the most dramatic parts of the book, one of the most intense parts, the plagues on Egypt, the ten plagues. And uh, if, you've, if you've read the Exodus story, if you've seen one of the movies, if you've gone through Sunday school and heard the Exodus story, you're probably familiar with the plagues. These are these, these disasters, really, that God brings upon Egypt, ten of them, as a precursor to Israel leaving the land. They're kind of the last big act acts that happen before Israel's finally freed from Egypt. Uh, they're well-known stories, but I think sometimes it's the well-known ones that trip us up. Sometimes it's the well-known stuff that kind of inoculates us to the truth, the deep truth of what's really going on. So we're going to have a fresh look at the plagues this morning. And uh, they take up quite a bit of space in the story of Exodus, about five chapters dedicated to the plagues. So I was, I was wrestling with how to divide this up for preaching. And my original thought was to take two or three of the plagues at a time and work through them systematically. And there's value to that. But the more I looked at them, really the best way of understanding the plagues is to see them as a whole, is to look at them together. They work together, they function together, and, and the best way of grasping their impact is to step back and look at the overall uh, theme of the plagues and the overall impact that they have. So that's what we're going to do. It's a bit of a challenge, but we're going to look at the, all of the plagues, at least the first nine of them this morning. We're going to save the last one. That's the death of the firstborn children in Egypt. We'll save that one to next week because that is a little bit unique. It stands alone a little bit, but we're going to look at the first nine plagues. So the challenge is that that's a lot of ground to cover. That's about three chapters, four chapters even, in the book of Exodus. So I can't read all of that to you this morning or else we'd be here to lunchtime. So I want to encourage you just in your own times with God, in your own times with Scripture, which I hope you have, to spend some time reading through these plague stories, these plague narratives, because it will give you a good sense of how each plague affected the people and the land of Egypt and, and the cumulative sense of the whole thing. Uh, but just for the sake of covering the ground, I'll read you just a few selected bits and pieces from Exodus 7 through to about Exodus 10. So I'm going to be jumping quite a lot. Um, this might be, much as we always encourage you to bring your Bible and have it open, this might be a morning when it's a bit easier to read it from the screen because I'm jump, going to jump a little bit. Just give you a few pieces of the story to help us put it together, and then we'll look at the plagues overall. So we're in Exodus chapter 7, and we'll start with the first plague in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out into the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile. 
and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Then over to 8, chapter 8, verse 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Why would you want to produce more frogs if you were? Anyway, uh, chapter 8, and then over to verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Uh, down to verse 22. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land, and I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by flies. Then all the way over to chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Hmm. So, the first thing that needs to be said about the plagues, probably shouldn't need to be said, but it does, the plagues were caused by God. It might sound really simple, but there is a theory that's been around for a while now that the plagues were just purely natural events, that they just had natural causes. And it, it, sometimes that's argued by people that want to take the plagues seriously as history, but they don't really want to take God seriously. So they kind of tell a story where the plagues, one follows another, and it's this breakdown of the ecosystem, and if this happened, then it would naturally cause this to happen, and the whole thing just ends up being completely natural uh, rather than supernatural. Uh, but what is abundantly clear from these texts, from this story, is that it is God who's caused these plagues to happen. And you read time and time again, the Lord said this, the Lord did this, and the plagues come. And then the Lord speaks again, and the plagues disappear. This is clearly the work of God. And at times, God can use secondary causes. He can use natural causes. No problem with that. So, for example, in the plague of the locusts, God uses the strong east wind that comes in, carries the locusts in. So God's not adverse to using natural causes, but behind those natural causes is Yahweh. And God is the author of these plagues. He is the one pulling the strings here. He's the one making these things happen. Now, at the basic level of history, 
The plagues come, God sends the plagues in order to free his people. It's simple enough. God sends the plagues because this winds Pharaoh up to the point where he finally relents, he finally accepts Moses' request, and he finally lets the people go. The plagues are the precursor to Israel finally being liberated and released from Egypt. That's the story that we tell. That's the story that we know and that we've heard in Sunday school, many of us, and that's often where we leave it. But there's a lot more going on with the plagues than that. There are some deep currents of meaning in these plagues that take us into the heart of the story, that reveal to us some of the deeper meanings that are going on in the book of Exodus and show us the place that the plagues have in the whole biblical story. Because the plagues, the plagues of Egypt, they have a particular place in the whole story of Scripture. They're so important that they actually pop up again at another point much, much later in the biblical story. And we'll look at that in a little while. But I want to give you two ways of looking at the plagues, two ways of thinking about the overall effect of these plagues. These take us into the deeper meanings, the deeper significance of what's really going on here when God brings these plagues. The first one is that the plagues represent God's judgment on the gods of Egypt. So it's not just God's judgment on Pharaoh or God's judgment on Egypt itself, but what God is doing here is bringing plagues that match the gods, so-called gods, of Egypt. The Egyptians had a multitude of gods, a whole pantheon of gods. They were basically a pantheistic people. That means that they saw divine life in pretty much everything, every living thing, human, animal, plant life, the earth itself, was considered to be in some way divine. So they had all kinds of deities that they worshipped. And you see with the plagues, in almost every case, not every single one, but in many cases, the plagues match up with gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So that in each case, you see God pronouncing his judgment on one of the gods of Egypt. So I'll give you some examples. The Nile River was considered to be a god. It's the god Harpy. And, and, and this god was responsible for nourishing and fertilizing the land of Egypt through the Nile River. So when God turns the water of the Nile to blood, what is he saying about the god Harpy? It, he's, he's been destroyed. That's the, that's the significance. It's the sort of grotesque image that Harpy has been slaughtered. The Nile's turned to blood. Harpy's been, been killed. The god of Egypt has died. And so God is showing up this god as a false god, as an idol. And God pronounces judgment upon this god of Egypt. Uh, there was a goddess in Egypt, the goddess of childbirth, who was depicted as a frog. I have no idea what the connection is between childbirth and frog, but that's what, that's what they went with. And so God brings a plague of frogs to pronounce judgment upon this frog goddess. There was, this is even stranger, there was a feminine god of love and beauty. And guess how she was depicted? As a cow. So I don't even want to go there, but God, in his, in his, in his wisdom, he sends the plague upon the livestock, wipes out the livestock. So he's sending this message that that god has been judged. There was a storm god in Egypt, the god Seth or Set, who appeared, manifested himself through storm and thunder and lightning and hail. So what does God do? Brings hail, great hailstorm upon Egypt. This god has been judged. There was the god Isis, very important god in Egypt, who was responsible for the crop cycle, nourishing the ground, from, was believed from below, uh, so to produce the crops. And so God sends the locusts and wipes out the crops, judgment again on another god. 
systematically God is going through and judging the gods of Egypt. And then you get to the plague of darkness. And this is really the climactic one. Because the great god in Egypt was Ra, the sun god, sometimes called Amon-Re. You might have come across Amon-Re and not at the museum if you've seen that. It's where we get most of our theology, isn't it? Uh, movies. So this was the great supreme god of Egypt, at least considered by many. Ra was identified with the sun. The sun was believed to be the source of life as well as light. And so Ra was the creator god, created everything and ruled over heaven and earth, water and land, the whole thing. And so God brings a plague of darkness. What is he saying about Ra? That Ra has no power. Ra is, is a false god, an idol. Ra has been judged. Ra can't save his own people. Ra is powerless. And God thrusts Egypt into darkness. So at every point, God is showing that these gods that the Egyptians worshipped, they're not gods, they're just part of Yahweh's created order. They're just part of God's world. God has created these things, and he is sovereign over them, and they exist within his world, but they're not gods to be worshipped. And because Egypt has elevated them to be gods that they worship, God brings his judgment, pronounces judgment, and symbolically shows that each of these gods is being wiped out. Egypt's protection is being taken away. So there's a whole layer of meaning there that we can appreciate if we see the connections between the plagues and the gods of Egypt. And that would have been particularly meaningful to the Egyptians themselves, watching the hail come down, watching the locusts come in, watching the land turn to darkness and thinking, hang on, that's this God, that's this God, that's this God, seeing their beloved deities uh, judged and destroyed. But there is another way of thinking about the plagues that I think would have been even more meaningful to the Israelites. And this is to see the plagues in connection with creation. There are a number of resonances between the plagues and the biblical creation story. And we've seen in the book of Exodus how the creation links are there right from the beginning, right from where Israelites are described as being fruitful and multiplying through the land. They're fulfilling the creation mandate of Genesis 1. And then there's all these links back to creation. And this is really true of the plagues. If you read the story of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of the world, you read the plagues, there's all of these connections and all of these parallels. So the plagues affect every part of creation. Heaven and earth, land and sea, human and animal life. It's all affected by these plagues. And what's happening in each case is that God is undoing creation. God is working creation backwards, taking it right back to the beginning, where creation is supposed to work in an orderly way and work for the good of humanity and work towards human flourishing. God is introducing chaos again. He's turning creation on its head. He's turning it upside down and he's reverting it back to chaos. So where the Nile River should be used for, for drinking, to sustain life, where animals should be used for food, where the crops should be there to sustain human life, God just destroys all of that. He brings all of that into chaos. He turns the land against humanity. And then he turns nature against humanity with the plague of the hail. Rather than working in an orderly way, rather than working in a way that supports human life, creation is unleashed. The chaotic forces of creation are unleashed against humanity. The plague of the boils. The human body is diseased. It it's becomes sick. It decays. Creation itself is working backwards. The plague of the gnats is really interesting here. Not gnats, the political party. This is, they're, they're basically like mosquitoes. It's the best way of thinking of these little critters. 
And you, you, the text actually says that from the dust of the ground, God brought forth these gnats. Now, what does that remind you of? Back in creation, God from the dust of the ground created the first human being, created Adam. And now the same language is used. God from the dust of the ground brings forth these pesky little mosquitoes. So whereas in the beginning, God creates human life from the dust, now the dust is being used to bring forth a disturbance, an irritation, something that really hinders humanity, something that disturbs the, 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 the flourishing of human life. The whole thing is, is, is being turned backwards. The creation story is going backwards. And then after the plague of the locusts and the hail, you have these categoric statements where not one tree is left untouched, not one green thing is left, every plant devoured, every tree destroyed. It's this picture of a land totally decimated, a picture of a land utterly ruined, completely barren. And then what comes next? Darkness. What does that sound like? Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the surface of the deep. By the time you get to the plague of darkness, the creation story has worked itself all the way backwards to day one. We're back in day one again with darkness. You see, God has told the creation story backwards through the plagues at every point. The um, Jesus Storybook Bible brings this theme out, interestingly enough. As it tells the story of the plagues, there's a little paragraph in here that brings out this theme of creation working backwards beautifully. I'll read you one paragraph. After that, sickness and horrible boils and huge hailstones and a storm of locusts, then darkness when it should have been day, until it seemed that the whole world, creation and everything, was coming undone, falling back into darkness and emptiness and nothingness. That's why you should buy this book. That's, I'm not even being paid to say this, but this is a great book, and that's brilliant theology wrapped up in a children's Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones gets it. She sees what's going on in the plagues. This is the creation story working backwards. And God is doing this. It's not, it's not the destructive forces of evil doing this. God is judging. But what, what we're seeing here is that evil has so permeated God's creation. Sin has run so rampant through every part of the cosmos that the only way God will judge it is by working creation right back to the beginning and starting again through Moses through the Israelites. Not dissimilar to what he did through Noah, when you think about that. Some, st some strong parallels there too. But God is judged. It's like evil has become so embedded in the world that God, the only way God can judge it is by stripping creation away, stripping layers and layers of the flesh of creation away, in a sense. Radical surgery to get right back to the beginning so that he can bring about new life. What we're seeing in the plagues is something much, much bigger than Pharaoh, much bigger than Egypt. This is about God's judgment upon evil in general. God gives us this up-close picture of what his judgment looks like. We could even say of what his wrath looks like. It's a harsh word, I know, but I think that's what the plagues are showing us. The wrath of God, the righteous anger of God, not just against Egypt, but against evil and sin in general and the way that sin has wreaked havoc on God's world, that it has been anti-creation. And so now God works creation right back, starts again as an act of judgment, as an act of wrath against sin and evil. And yet in the midst of that judgment, and wrath, 
there is mercy. And this is so important. You have two wonderful glimpses of the love and the mercy of God right in the midst of these plague stories. One is that God stops many of the plagues. We don't read that he stops all of them, but in some cases God brings them to an end. And the power of Yahweh is seen as much in his stopping the plagues as it is in his bringing the plagues. That's really important. When God stops the plagues, the language is emphatic. Not a single fly was left. Not a single locust was left. God decisively steps in. And if the plagues can be seen as creation being undone, then the stopping of the plagues represents new creation, represents new life. Out of chaos, out of darkness, out of devastation, God brings new life, returns creation back to what it was supposed to be in the beginning. God's working new creation even in the midst of chaos. And of course, the main uh, glimpse of God's mercy in the story is God protecting the Israelites. Time and time again, God spares the Israelites. The city where they live, Goshen, is untouched. And just imagine, just try and get yourself inside the story for a minute. Imagine what it would have been like for the Israelites, looking out their homes at the rest of Egypt, looking at the, at the hail, looking at the locusts, looking at the, at the storm and, and all of this devastation, the darkness, and their homes are fine. And their families are fine. And their animals are fine. And the weather's fine outside. And they're looking at all of this. What would they have been thinking? What would they have been feeling? Who is this God that we're dealing with here? Who, this, is, this is them getting to know God for the first time. And this is how he's revealing himself. Man, they would have been sobered by the judgment of God. And incredibly grateful, I would say, to have been protected from that. That they are the people that God has chosen to shelter and protect and relieve, not because of anything good in them, but just the mercy of God that he has protected this town, the city where the Israelites live. He sheltered them. Must have made them incredibly grateful and humbled seeing that happen. So the plagues at one level, the level of history, they are God's judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt for their treatment of Israel. Then at a deeper level, they are God's judgment upon the gods of Egypt, and the whole Egyptian mythology that went along with that. And then at the deepest level, the plagues are God's judgment upon evil in general. And he shows it by working creation itself backwards and undoing his creative work. The plagues are such a significant picture of God's judgment in Scripture. They're such a graphic picture of God's wrath and God's judgment. It's not surprising that later in the biblical story, they do crop up again. There's another point, much, much later in the biblical story, where we get another version of the plagues. And it's way over in the book of Revelation. Our old friend, Revelation. Just turn over there for a minute. And we did a whole series. My favorite preaching series I've ever done was on Revelation. And it's all online if you want to listen to it, all 20 whatever messages that we did. But just turn over for a second to Revelation 16. Because the plagues are here again. Revelation 16 is this symbolic picture. You have seven angels with seven bowls of wrath. That's what they're called. And it's a picture of God's judgment. picture of God's judgment upon sin and upon evil. These angels holding the bowls of wrath. And these bowls are specifically described as being plagues 
at a couple of points. So God is again going to bring these plagues upon the earth. I want to read you just a, a few selected verses from this chapter. I know that we're kind of conditioned to read Revelation futuristically, like it's all stuff that's going to happen one day in the end times. But just for a minute, put that out of your head. And I want to encourage you to think about these verses as a description of what happened on the cross. A description of God's judgment that came upon sin at the cross in the death of Jesus. And listen for the links here to the plagues. So Revelation 16, uh, verse 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. Uh, then down to verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Uh, then down to verse 13, then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. Where have we heard them before? They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and of the mouth of the false prophet. And then right down to verse 21, from the sky, huge uh, hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on the people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So here are the plagues. Again, uh, almost every one of these seven bowls of wrath lines up with one of the plagues. And I want to suggest that this is a graphic description of God's judgment unleashed at the cross upon Christ, his own son. And so what the Bible is telling us here is that the plagues of Egypt, that was an historical event that happened for the benefit of Israel at the time, but it's got a bigger purpose. In the biblical story, the plagues point us forward to the cross. The plagues point us forward. They're a little foreshadowing of the fullness of God's judgment that is going to be and was revealed on the cross. So when Jesus is crucified on the cross, it was like God bringing even greater plagues of judgment upon Christ. And the plagues in Revelation 16, they are more severe than the plagues of Egypt. The hailstones in Revelation 16 weigh about 45 kgs each. These massive boulders. So they're bigger than the hailstones that came upon Egypt. It's not just the Nile River that's polluted, but all of the sea now. This is the fullness of God's wrath and God's judgment. So what God has done on the cross is lured sin to one place. He's lured all evil to one point. All human sin, all spiritual evil, all the powers and principalities of darkness, even Satan himself, God's lured it all to the cross. It's all converged on the cross. And then we see God pouring out the fullness of his judgment upon the innocent Son of God on the cross. And, you know, we talk about Jesus paid the price for my sin on the cross and we use this kind of language and that's good. But I don't know that we always appreciate the severity of God's judgment that rained down like hailstones upon the body of his son on the cross. This was the most intense judgment. This was the fullness of the wrath of the father poured out upon the one person who never deserved it. This is Jesus, the judge. Jesus, the righteous judge, becoming judged, bringing himself under the judgment of God and experiencing what you and I should have experienced, the plagues, the judgment, the wrath, the fury of God. Jesus absorbed it within his body on the cross, took our place and absorbed the fullness of the judgment of God. And he stood between us and the wrath of God on the cross. 
so that we were sheltered from the plagues. We are like the Israelites, those of us who belong to Jesus. We're like the Israelites peering out the windows of our homes at the cross. And we see the judgment of God raining down upon Jesus. And yet we're sheltered. And yet in the mercy and by the sheer pleasure of God, we are sheltered from it because Jesus stands and he takes the brunt of the wrath of God for us so that we can be protected, so that we can be sheltered. This is what has taken place on the cross for us. And this should bring us to our knees in gratitude, shouldn't it? Not just Jesus paid for my sins on the cross, but Jesus took the fullness of the wrath and the fury and the righteous anger of a just and holy God for me, for my sin, and for the sin of all humanity. And he did it, and he didn't have to do it, but he did it for me out of his love and the love of the Father. That's the, that's the message of the cross. That's why the plagues are used to show us just how severe sin is, how severe evil is, and what an amazing thing it is that Jesus has been judged in our place and on our behalf. So this is the point of the plagues, I would say, in the biblical story. They were for the sake of Israel, but not just for Israel. They were for our sake too, to give us a powerful glimpse into the judgment of God and the mercy of God that he's shown to us. Because on the other side of the cross, there's mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just like the darkness covered the land for three days in Egypt, and then you get to the cross, and even though the plagues didn't literally happen on the cross, one of them did. You know which one? Darkness, right? From about noon until 3 p.m. on that Friday, darkness covered the land of Palestine, or at least the area where Jesus was crucified. And it wasn't just a gimmick. That's an echo of the plagues. That's God saying to us that once again, creation has been worked backwards. It's gone right back to day one again. God has judged evil by undoing creation. And now he's starting again through this one man, Jesus. Then he's raised from the dead. New creation comes about. And we are saved through him if we belong to Jesus. So I want to suggest two ways that we can respond to this. Two ways that we can respond to the plagues in our life. One way that's really unhelpful, and then one way that's slightly, hopefully, more helpful. A really unhelpful way of responding to the plagues is to look at natural disasters today and do the same thing and say, that must be the judgment of God, just like the plagues, and try and draw these one-to-one correlations between natural disasters or human loss of life today and God's judgment. And sadly, Christians still do this, People did it after 9-11. People did it after the Christchurch earthquake, claiming that these events are just like the plagues. This is the judgment of God upon the sin of America or upon the sin of Christchurch or whatever it is. When we say those things, not only do we make ourselves and every other Christian look foolish, but we bring the gospel into disrepute and we're not even reading the biblical story well. We're not even reading the, the, the judgment and the love of God well in Scripture. Because these acts of judgment that God brings about, these acts upon upon nations or upon cities, they are part of God's working in the old covenant with and through Israel. They're not part of his working from Jesus onward in the new covenant. And even when God brings these acts of judgment about in the Old Testament, he always precedes it by a clear and direct warning 
through a designated angel or a prophet announcing exactly what is to come. And these natural disasters and human tragedies we see today, they just don't fall into that category. They're just not the same thing. So please don't say that kind of stuff when, when, when that happens. Don't look at the Nepalese earthquake and say, well, this must be the judgment of God. No, it's not. No, it's not. If you want a way of understanding events like that biblically, go to Romans 8, which talks about the groaning of creation under sin. That's how we should understand these kinds of things today, that we live in a world that is still broken and sinful and fallen, and this, this stuff happens because creation itself is groaning under the weight of sin, crying out for its liberation, and one day that's going to happen when Jesus finally returns. But it's not because God has chosen to step in and judge a people or a city or a nation. He just doesn't work like that today. God's judgment happened at the cross. And when we try and identify specific acts today with God's judgment, we're actually taking away from the judgment that occurred on the cross. That was the fullness of his wrath. That was the fullness of his judgment. One day there'll be a final judgment and that will be outworked. But God's judgment has already come upon Jesus. God doesn't need to judge particular nations and cities and peoples today. And it's not our right to try and make those kinds of calls. So be very, very careful about drawing one-to-one correlations between the plagues and contemporary events today. I want to suggest a better way of responding to the plagues, a more biblical way, is to let these images of God's judgment lead us to the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not being scared of God. It's not cowering before him as some kind of capricious deity. But it's a positive thing where we revere God for who he is, And we take seriously his love and his justice and his power and the reality of his judgment. You know, we try as a church to be a really grace-centered community. And I know many of you have found that. And many of you are here because you found this to be a safe place where we talk about grace and we emphasize the love of God. But that never means that we turn a blind eye to the judgment of God. It's never either or. The judgment of God is very real. God's wrath is very real. It's revealed in Scripture. And it doesn't negate the grace of God. In fact, you can't appreciate the grace of God until you understand the judgment of God that we've been saved from, that there is no condemnation. So we can be grateful because we've been spared from the judgment of God on the cross. That's what salvation is, being saved from the wrath and the judgment of God. So it never undermines grace, but we need to take seriously the fear of the Lord in our lives. And that means that we don't treat sin lightly. You know, I think we tend to in our contemporary culture. We're just kind of a bit flippant with sin. We don't really care sometimes. We just ignore it. We don't treat it that, that seriously. But the plague stories remind us God takes sin incredibly seriously. It is an affront to a holy God. It is a personal offense to a holy and righteous God before whom we should tremble. God takes sin seriously, but he has judged it on the cross. The fear of the Lord should lead us to a bigger view of God's holiness. That we worship him as the king of kings, as the God who holds the power of life and death in his hands. It should lead us to worship him with reverence, to worship him with awe, worship him with humility. If if, When we just stand in church some Sundays and we're just kind of a bit distant, we're a bit aloof, we just go through the motions, we've completely lost sight of who God is. We've completely lost sight of whom this God is. Who we, who we love and who we relate to. He is righteous and holy, and he's a God of judgment and a God of mercy and a God of love. The fear of the Lord helps to breed that in us by recognizing the holiness of God. 
And at the same time, it leads us to a deep, deep appreciation for the love of God and the grace that's been revealed to us because we see that Jesus has truly taken our place. And that should lead us to a deep gratitude of what God has done in our lives and a willingness to submit ourselves fully to him, to deal with sin in our lives, to trust ourselves to God and to be thankful for the incredible mercy that he's shown us in sparing us from his judgment. I think of that scene in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where uh, they're describing Aslan, who of course represents Christ. And Lucy asks, uh, is he safe? And the answer comes back, of course he's not safe, but he is good. And that's God, right? He's not safe. He's not a safe God. The God who brought the plagues upon Egypt, there's no way that's a safe God. There's no way. That's, That's not a tame God. That's not a domesticated deity. That's a wild God. Sometimes an unpredictable God, a completely untamable God. He's not safe, but he is very, very good. And he loves us deeply. And out of his sheer mercy and pleasure, he has chosen us and called us and we belong to him. And I just want to say to you this morning, I I want to be sensitive in the way I bring this across, but I just want to appeal to you. If any of you are here and you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to come into relationship with him and step into relationship with him because right now, you are still under the judgment of God if you don't know Jesus. That's the reality. And I, I never want to be a preacher of hellfire and brimstone, but it's the unavoidable reality of Scripture that if you don't belong to Jesus, if, you're, if you don't have that shelter and protection of, of his blood in our lives, then you are still, in a sense, exposed to the judgment of God. I want to encourage you, in view of God's judgment and especially in view of his mercy, to step into relationship with him, to be reconciled to God. That's why Jesus has died, to make that possible for you. I want to encourage you to take that step today out of the fear of the Lord and out of a response to what he's done for us. And I want to encourage you that if you're a Christian here to take more seriously the fear of God. Revelation says, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour of his judgment came upon the cross. It's already come. And one day he will come again in glory and that judgment will be finally outworked. It'll be finally implemented. And so judgment should lead us to fear, healthy fear. And fear should lead us to worship. That's why Hebrews says, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe because our God is a consuming fire, a fire of judgment, but a fire of love and mercy. So may we fear God. May we give him glory because of his great love and the reality of his judgment. Let's pray. Father God, we do just, we bow our knees, Lord, before you. God, we're mindful of your holiness. And God, there's kind of a soberness here, I think, just as we think about the reality of who you are. God, forgive us for the times when we've treated lightly your grace, where we've taken for granted the sacrifice that you've made for us and where we've we've treated sin and evil just flippantly in our lives god we we come back now and and ask you to forgive us we want to set before us now a right view of who you are god of love god of holiness
God, we, we recognize that even as we talk to you now, you're the same God who brought the plagues upon Egypt. You're the same God who has taken that judgment upon yourself on the cross. And Father, we, we can't fathom what it is that you've done for us at the cross. But we are just so grateful. We pray that we would get a deeper view of the cross, of your judgment, so that we would have a deeper view of your mercy and your grace in our lives. Teach us what it means to truly fear you, God, in reverence. I pray, God, that if anything I've said would just lead people to be scared, that you'd just wash that away. And forgive me for that. Lord, if, if anything that I've said has just led to us just being afraid of you in a way that's unhealthy, I pray you just let that all wash away. But, but God, may we fear you as, as you desire to have reverence, to worship you, to be sobered by the reality of sin and judgment so that we can be so thankful for your grace. And now, God, as we come to the meal of communion, we pray that all of this would come together in our minds and hearts that we would be so mindful of the judgment that you have taken for us, Jesus, that we would eat and drink with sober hearts, with a certain seriousness, because of the weightiness of what this meal represents. And that like the Israelites, we would be just so deeply thankful that you have sheltered and protected us by your love, and that, Jesus, you have stood between us and judgment and condemnation. Lord, help us to be grateful for that. And renew your grace and mercy in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.